Dante plus here. Hunter, your heel. That's right. We got a, a sick tree for you today, is that right? Uh, that's one way of putting it, yeah. What is that sick treat? It's actually uh, two sick treats in the form of 2020 Stardust, not like you know 2012 Stardust or whatever that year was when that I think film it was came 2007. out. 2007 Stardust. Um, nice try, uh, though, dude. That was way off. 2020s Stardust. I thought you were supposed to be intelligent. And, I thought uh, you were supposed to be the smart one. Are we, are we doing this again? Doing what? Hello, welcome to Project A+. No, Plus. I'm doing it um, again. Uh, um, yeah, what am I talking about? Stardust. Yeah, so the treat that is coming your way, the, the duo of, of treats, if you will, the double feature today on the docket is 2020 Stardust, not 2007 Stardust, and... Uh, 1988 or 9 or 9? 1988 or 1989's Last Temptation of Christ. That's 88 and the other Star Wars movie is from 2007, like I said. I already covered that the second time around. Um, Star Wars Robert De Niro. And uh, Adam Buxton. And Peter O'Toole. <coughs> and Johnny Flynn. And Mark Marin. Yeah. And uh, why did we decide on these particular films? Yeah, so what, what is the link between The Last Temptation of Christ and 2020's Stardust? Which also links this episode back to a previous episode of Project A+. Well, what is that link? Feature, one of them features uh, a real, a live David Bowie, and one of them features a uh, sort of... Uh, <laughs> Simulacrum, simulacrum of belly, <laughs> uh, ex post facto belly, let's say. Mm-hmm. A um, poorly reanimated corpse of belly. Yes. Um, it's like weekend at Bernie's, but it's weekend at Bowie's. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like weekend at Bernie's too, but it's weekend at Bowie's too. Yeah, so the link is David Bowie. Yeah, One of them is about David Bowie and features someone pretending to be David Bowie, and the other one features the real David Bowie. So, do uh, you have any, any uh, amusing anecdotes you want to share before the, the, the show today? Um, it has been a while since we last recorded an episode. Anything happening with you? Oh, I have to get an endoscopy. Hmm. And what, what? what is that exactly? Oh, Hugh, I'm glad you asked. It's when they, you know, you're awake during all of this as far as I can tell. They, uh, <coughs> yeah, I'm awake. I'm sitting in the corner. Shut I'm the watching fuck up. the procedure. So they put a numbing agent down your throat, okay? Mm-hmm. And they put a big tube in your throat, in your esophagus. And then they stick a, a camera that can also do a biopsy. And that goes into your stomach and upper intestine and stuff and uh, sees if anything's amiss. Wow. Yeah. So I'm extremely excited for that. Uh, when does that take place? It takes place May 20th. Wow. Yep. Yep. That's pretty really. exciting. Yeah, I... Uh, well, I mean, hopefully it'll be, you know, something that, uh, you know, determines what's making me feel uh, sick all the time. 
and hopefully they'll be able to rectify it. Yeah, hopefully it's not rectal cancer. I mean, could it be rectal cancer? I mean, probably not. Well, maybe but it's, is that maybe even it's, a possibility? Uh, I mean, I guess it would be a possibility if, like, I had rectal cancer and that it spread to my stomach or you know, something else that maybe have a lot oh, yeah. of uh, acid reflux. Yeah. So. Okay. I guess I wouldn't really necessarily be the cause of the upset stomachs. No. That'd be the the cause of the cause, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, that's pretty exciting. Mm, not really. Annoying, I guess. <laughs> uh, well, the uh, burning on in my penis seems to have stopped. So that's also that's good. good. Yeah. You no longer uh, pissing blood. I uh, don't know that yet. I have to. Um, what do you mean you don't know that yet? Well, uh, the blood uh, piss that I had exceeded previously was not detectable to the eye, so. Ah, how was it picked up? Well, they test your, uh, uh, they test your urine, and uh, if it's, you know, they could they could test it for blood, and they did. Okay. So you just re- so were you just experiencing pain mm-hmm. in that department? Mm-hmm. And then they did a like, test. Okay. Yep. So uh, I've I've been taking antibiotics. Uh, and hopefully that means I had a UTI or something like that. Um, hmm. They cleared it up. I mean, uh, who knows if it if it did. Um, we'll see, I guess. Yeah, if not, then I'll probably have to get a really uh, painful and unfun procedure done. <laughs> yeah. It's all happening in your body, eh? Yeah. Everything's falling apart. Mm. <clears throat> but luckily, uh, as far as I can tell, your voice appears to be working fine and hopefully your mind along with it. So uh, your podcasting um, abilities should be unaffected, right? I actually have a headache right now, so. Hmm. Okay. Wow. So yeah, life going great. Mm. Alright, well, uh, should we just fucking get into it? Let's do it. So, um, we are introducing a... uh, a new recurring segment uh, that will uh, take place over the next uh, six episodes, including this one. And it is called Project A Plus Roulette or something. Do we have a name for it? That's good. That's good enough. All right. It's called Project A Plus Roulette. Project A Plus Russian Roulette. Project A Plus Russian Roulette. Fine. Russian Project A Plus Roulette. Project Russian Roulette Plus. (laughs) The way it works is as follows. Um, There are six chambers, as there would be in uh, the gun if we were playing real Russian roulette, as opposed to metaphorical Russian roulette. And in each of those chambers is a film. 
Now, five of those films uh, are films that we have selected because we expect them to be pleasurable to watch. And uh, one of those films we have selected because we believe it would be not pleasurable to watch. And in fact, to compound the experience, if we do land on the unpleasant film, we have to watch it three times in a row. Now, because this is Project A+, and because this is Project Russian+, plus Roulette, whatever, um, we have selected a theme that is appropriate to our podcast, and that theme is, of course, Jackie Chan movies. So there will be six Jackie Chan movies, five of them uh, good Jackie Chan movies, one of them well, a film that uh, is good. not considered a good Jackie Chan movie. <laughs> Three of them are good movies. <laughs> Three of them are good Jackie yeah, Chan right. movies. One of them is a good movie that he's barely in. And yeah. uh, one of them is a somewhat entertaining movie that he's in. So uh, anyway, would you like to tell the audience what the films are? All right. So chamber one, we've got um, King Ho's Come Drink With Me. We should also explain that we're going chronologically by decade from the beginning of Jackie Chan's career until the 2010s. So that one's from the 1960s. In Chamber 2, we have Snake and Eagle Shadow, which is from the 1970s. Chamber 3, we have Miracles from the 1980s. Chamber 4, Mr. Nice Guy from the 1990s. And Chamber 5, Founding of a Republic three times in a row from the aughts. And from the 2010s, we have Project or Chinese Zodiac. That's it. Yeah. So the, the bullet, as it were, is watching the founding of the Republic, the founding of a Republic three times in a row. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas the other films are, are considered empty chambers. That's right. With no bullets in them. Um, and I just realized maybe we should call this segment the six chambers of... Uh, something else. Why? Not Shaolin. But he wasn't in that. I know. But, so, it's pretty, you know, the pretty fact dumb. that there's Chambers and that's a, that's a famous Hong Kong film, seems seems like we could do something with that. Or not. Never mind. Let's move on. Yeah. Anyway, should we, should we uh, put the gun to our head, one of our heads? How does it work? Well, we got we got to do a coin flip first, of course. Uh, is it that uh, one of us fires each week? Is that what it is? Yeah. We can't both yeah. fire each week. So we over- flip a coin now mm-hmm. to determine who goes first. Yep. I call Tails. Okay, Tails. All right. And what do we got here? Oh, and it is Tails. Wait, so does that mean you have to shoot first or that I have to shoot first? I think it means I, I get to decide. Okay, that's acceptable. Because I won the coin toss. Well, if I were you, I would choose to shoot myself now. Why? Because you have the highest odds of not getting Founding of the Republic, right? I suppose you're right. But it's also possible I could get Founding of the Republic. <laughs> yeah, that's true every week. Yeah, you're right. I'll shoot myself. <laughs> All right. Founding of the Republic. Founding of the Republic. <laughs> <laughs> and then the game ends, like, instantly? No, no, no. We have to go through the rest of them, obviously. That's actually, not how Russian roulette works. Actually, After the guy it, shoots himself in the head, it's over. <laughs> it would be funnier if it just ended at that point. It would be funny, I agree. Okay. So we should do that. All That's right. the agreement. It stops once someone hits founding of a republic. Yeah. Alright, do you want me to go ahead and give you a, a random number? Or do you want me to do it? Or do you want to do it? Uh 
yeah, how are we going to do this? Trust well, we could just use it. We could just use a, a number generator. I already have the it's sequenced in, in order, so. Just do it, yeah. Go ahead, do it. Do you trust me? All right. Generate one random integer. Each one should have a value between one and six. All right. Okay, you ready? Mm-hmm. All right. Get numbers, okay? And you just got fucking blasted with nothing. You got hit by chamber number one, which is come trick with me. Do I just watch it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then you should okay. report about it. <laughs> All right. All right. So uh, we'll see you next Seen week it. for uh, what is it? Project Russian Roulette. Project Roulette plus. Russian Plus. Um. Okay, so I've uh, not only have I seen Come Drink With Me before, but I've seen it recently enough that I spoke about it on the podcast, like maybe like a dozen episodes ago. Oh, you still got to watch it again. <laughs> All right. It's a good film, so I don't yeah. mind. Yeah, I'm sure you wouldn't. All right, uh, now we've got to do another uh, bit of random choosing. Uh, which is that uh, we have we're bringing back in honor of our uh, you know hundredth episode we're bringing back uh, each each week we're bringing back a, a new old segment out of the vault out of the vault uh, I don't I don't remember which one we did last time do you remember I think it was the clo- no it was the meal reels on meals wasn't it yeah I guess that that's the one that's missing from my list so yeah I think it was reels on meals All right. Uh, I'm going to generate another random number, and we're going to see which uh, segment we do. You ready? Yeah. <laughs> Please not drag on forever. <laughs> <laughs> it would even go if it was drag on forever. Would it be you or me? We'd flip a coin. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let's see. Half this podcast is going to be generating random numbers and flipping <laughs> coins. All right. I'm generating a number, and it is number five, which is drag on forever. <laughs> 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 All right. Um, well, I guess it's a flip of a coin. Let's flip a coin. All right. Gonna, I'm calling uh, tails again. Okay, I'm gonna select my uh, Australian dollar coin again. And let's see, flipping my coin. Ah, and it is heads. Yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, I have to think of some fucking bullshit to talk about for the last five minutes of this podcast. Yes. So I'll be preoccupied while we're trying to talk about Stardust and Last Temptation of Christ. I'll be thinking of some what bullshit. What about your bonus features? I guess during my bonus features, I could do it as well. Yeah. You probably buy bonus features. Or during your bonus features, yeah. I can really zone out, think <laughs> yeah. about it, start planning. All right. Well, let's get on to the movie, shall we? What do you want to start with? I mean, I guess it's a small mercy that I don't have to listen to one of your Dragon Forevers and then it's just suck, me. Suck, suck, my, suck my balls. Okay. <laughs> no, that's not really sucking them. That's like licking them. It's choking me. I'm trying to suck them, but they fell into my mouth, down my throat. Yeah. Well, better, I just better swallowed them. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's okay. I'll forgive you this one time. Is this a good podcast? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh, 
never been better. Sometimes it's difficult to tell when you're in the moment, but uh, you know, gonna, I've got a good feeling about it. You just gotta keep on reminding yourself that this is the greatest podcast of all time. Mm. I'm on the cross day dreaming that I had a wife. She died and I remarried. It happened twice. Oh, So, uh, Last Temptation of Christ uh, is a 1988 film directed by uh, David Bowie. <laughs> by <laughs> Martin Scorsese, rather. <laughs> Off to a great start so far. Uh, let's, let's try that again. <clears throat> the Last Temptation of Christ is a 1988 film directed by acclaimed director Martin Scorsese. It is adapted from <laughs> some Greek guy's novel. <laughs> Uh, Nikos Kazantzakis. <laughs> Nika, Nikos Kazantzakis' is a 1955 novel of the same uh, title. Uh, well, that's a Greek title. You mean the translated title is the same as... Yeah, the same English translated title. Yeah, but it's not like you would call it the Greek title if you were talking about it like, conversationally, unless you're, a, unless you're a psycho. I would call it the Greek title, which is... Um, that's the uh, written in Greek. <laughs> <laughs> that's the Italian title. Uh, I see a difference. Um, uh, the Greek title is written in uh, Greek characters, so I can't <laughs> actually read it. So never mind. It's actually thought you, you dipshit. Anyway, uh, it's about. Oh no, sorry, no, no, no. It actually has a, a Romanized version of it. Oh, what's your? Oh, tell you Teos periasmos. I wonder what that means. The Last Temptation of Christ. No way. I don't know where the Christ is in that. Yeah, that's what I mean. It sounds odd, because you'd think that the name Christ would not be that different in Greek, right? Well, let's just, let's just translate it real quick and see if it works. Good idea. Let's see, your translate tells me... What? What? Oh, let's just try. Okay, that did, that did not work. Hang on, I've got it. Oh, it just says the last temptation. So no, no Christ in there. Just the last temptation. I guess that mm. makes sense. Yeah, the last temptation. Yeah. Okay, great. So um, it's about uh, the Lord Jesus Christ who saved our soul, our souls, the collective souls, and our singular collective soul. Mm-hmm. Uh, before he did that, you know, did you know that he was tempted by the devil to uh, <laughs> with some. Uh, <laughs> Really, uh, quality pussy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's basically all there is to it. The devil slash a giant Zippo lighter <laughs> in the desert. Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's let's try that again. So, uh, you know, it follows the life of Christ. Um, you know, both uh, pre and during the Gospels. You know, he's like, uh, you know, first he's making crosses. And then he goes to the desert and, uh, you know, here's some visions. He, I don't know, meets John the Baptist. And he starts having disciples and then, you know, he gets crucified. All, all the normal Jesus stuff for the most part. Uh, but where the film radically diverges uh, from the uh, uh, the Gospels is that instead of just, you know, hanging out there and then dying and then getting resurrected three days later, what happens is that... Um, <clears throat> 
the uh, an angel sent by Satan decides to tempt Jesus, uh, and um, you know, with the prospect of uh, I don't know marrying uh, Mary Magdalene and having a kid with her, and then after she dies, uh, Mary, both of her sisters, then having kids with them. Um, I don't know, that's pretty much it. <laughs> I mean. That's not the only departure from, from the Gospels. Like, the whole interpretation of the character is kind of the other radical aspect of this film. Um, his kind of human struggles with his destiny, or at least the struggles rendered in human terms, I should say. Um, and also what you glossed over, the fact that, you know, at the beginning of the film, he's someone who, who's actually manufacturing crosses. <laughs> That's what he's doing with his um, well, isn't isn't it ironic carpentry business, um, as a way to kind of resist his destiny or refute God. But yeah, but yeah, the, the most controversial aspect was that uh, that sequence, that kind of dream sequence that he has um, while he's on the cross, where it depicts what would happen if he uh, if he got pussy, <laughs> if he just if he just climbed down from the cross and was like, yeah, no, I'm not the son of God. And just had a normal life. Gonna get got got pussy. I think that's the key, key, crucial point. Yeah. Alright, Well, well what do you th- what do you think about the movie, Hugh? <laughs> what did I think about the movie? Uh huh. Um. Well, well, as you know, I, I'm not a big Scorsese mark. Well, that's because you're a, like a um, little little guy. Nor am I a little Scorsese mark. I'm I'm no form of Scorsese mark and never have I been. But you like you like the Irish. In fact, in fact, I've never owned a single one of his films, <laughs> with the notable exception of this one, which I bought for seven dollars probably over a decade ago on DVD, <laughs> and uh, have only just watched for the first time um, because of the imperative that this episode of the podcast provided me. Which isn't to say. I resent or dislike Scorsese. Uh, I have appreciated uh, some of his stuff over the years, respected him as a director. Um, but honestly, I'd prefer if uh, he kept making like Voyage to Italy style documentaries uh, <laughs> about his favorite films instead of uh, trying to make films himself. Well, anyway. Uh, as, as a much uh, greater appreciator of Scorsese's art than you, I think I would agree with you. <laughs> Anyway, it probably seems kind of weird that the only Scorsese film I ever bought um, was this one. But the truth is, uh, the idea of this film did always interest me. Mm. The subject matter interests me. The story of Jesus interests me. Um, So here we are. So finally, finally, I sit down to watch this film after over a decade. Mm. And uh, and I would say it gets off to, to... at least what I thought at the time was kind of a rocky start. Hmm. So we have the somewhat ham-fisted Peter Gabriel score, <laughs> uh, which which was reportedly, I read, innovative at the time, but which now sounds kind of like world-beat cliche. <laughs> uh, i got, I got to be honest with you, Hill. Uh, I thought the soundtrack was really great. <laughs> but I will say, no, 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 I'm not saying it's a bad soundtrack. I think some of it is really effective, but it does have that kind of, like, cliched mm. sound at least to today's ears like the kind of tribal drum stuff yeah that kind yeah. of like uh, global appropriation um sounds kind of dodgy these days i think but um we also have some other 
issues at the start of the film. Mm. Um, a lot of abrupt editing, especially early on, which seems to betray the difficulties the production experienced uh, from what I've read. And uh, then we have Harvey Keitel <laughs> with his bizarre hair, kind of bizarre performance. <laughs> well, I loved it. <laughs> And I'll get to what I think about his performance overall a bit later. But at this point in the film, I was just thinking, man, Scorsese kind of blows, right? <laughs> what is this? What is this crap? Um, but but I will say, as it goes on, um, it did manage to win me over, to convert me, if you will. <laughs> and I actually think it sits near the top of uh, Scorsese's best films for me personally. Mm. That's interesting. Um, I, I found something undeniably moving about it. Something in Defoe's face, at once human and alien, which I think is fitting. For, <laughs> once, you know, once the, human and goblin. <laughs> <laughs> but it is funny because that, that, that human dimension that is, is required of, of his performance is definitely mm. there. Like That's yeah. something that Defoe definitely brings. But he also looks like a, a weird alien yeah. guy, you, you goblin. Def- you definitely buy that he wants, <laughs> he wants to fuck, but he, he can't let himself fuck, you know? <laughs> And that, like, he's not entirely human, right? He's not 100% just a human guy. Um, But the funny thing is that, like, despite the protest from Christian groups uh, about this film at the time that it was released or before it was being released, the irony is that it functions as much better propaganda for Christianity than actual Christian propaganda. Well, well, for for people like us, maybe. (laughs) For people like us, yeah. For the unconverted. Seeing Jesus' struggle rendered as a human struggle becomes the ultimate affirmation of faith, Mm. from one perspective at least. Um, The film doesn't feel like it's trying to sell you Christianity. It feels like an earnest exploration of the figure of Jesus. Yeah, Jesus and, yeah. 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 So the film is messy at times. Um, As I said, you can sense there were some issues with the production that the editing tries to kind of patch over. Mm-hmm. The Mary Magdalene stuff I don't think is aged uh, particularly well. Uh, I, I do find it very funny um, that during the, that dream sequence after Mary dies <laughs> in the dream, the guardian angel says, don't worry, all women, all women are the same, just just grab another one, it's all, <laughs> yeah. it's all the same. <laughs> well, grab, grab two, well, it's all, there's only one woman. <laughs> so, so actually Scorsese is being woke there because he's suggesting that Satan is a misogynist. So that's right, that's right. <laughs> Um, but but I, I do think even despite the messiness and the stuff that doesn't work as well, um, even the rough edges kind of enhance the film's effect mm. uh, that it is indeed an accomplished film. Yeah. <laughs> nice. That's my that's my review. What about you? Yeah, I was. Uh, you know what? I was I was really not looking forward to watching this at all. <laughs> <laughs> And honestly, I don't even know why I bought it. I really am not particularly interested in the life of Jesus. Uh, I don't really care that much. Um, I don't know. <laughs> Sitting there, you know, just just re- ready to, like, resist the urge to check my phone every 20 minutes. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I thought, I thought it was pretty engaging. Uh, yeah, I agree that um, the fact that, uh, you know, Defoe is so magnetic in this film and he's so... So you know, as you say, like human and 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 not at the same time. Like it, it, it really makes a a compelling performance. And I have no idea how uh, the film would have worked without him. You know, like mm. and Aiden Quinn was attached to be Jesus for the first iteration of the production. Uh, that would have been probably really bad. <laughs> 
Um, but yeah, Defoe is great. And I, I really, um, I think the part that I found the most touching was the relationship between him and Judas, which I feel like is also probably somewhat controversial to some Catholics, you know, because uh, I mean, I, I, you know, I don't, I'm not really up on Christian doc, doctrine, but I think portraying Judas is like this very tragic figure is kind of, uh, I don't know. It seems, it seems uh, unorthodox to me, <laughs> but who knows? But this makes more sense to me than considering Judas as like a straight up traitor, right? Because yeah. the whole point is that the crucifixion is God's will. Yeah, yeah. So um, Judas is an instrument of God's will, even as like he's superficially betray- betraying Jesus in like the, you know, the surface level. He's not really a bad guy, right? He's doing. He's yeah, doing. He's, he's doing what Jesus wants. He's Jesus bringing about God's will. So this, um, that's something I've always thought when I, you know, learned the Bible mm. stories, that always uh, stuck out for me. So I, I like the fact that that is uh, really um, emphasized in this, and that he's more of a heroic and tragic figure. Yeah. Yeah, and I really just enjoyed, you know, the fact that <laughs> Scorsese just used all of his guys in this movie, you know, like mm. <laughs> you get Victor Argo in there. <laughs> and I just love, you know, hearing, uh, you know, Victor Argo, who is Puerto Rican and obviously extremely has a very thick, like, New York accent. He's going, hey, Rabbi, you know, <laughs> it's just fun stuff. Um, and uh, <laughs> I loved Harry Dean Stanton as Paul, too. I thought that was great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And Ruby uh, Kirshner as, as some random guy that was also really funny. <laughs> yeah, I saw his name in the credits. I was like, "What?" <laughs> yeah, I was like, "What happened to make that to get them involved?" Uh, I, I will admit that uh, during the after you know I, I was really engaged with them for the first maybe two and, and hours and fifteen minutes, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as soon as like the fantasy sequence kind of started, I was like, okay, I'm ready for it to be done. <laughs> Uh, but I will say that the uh, sequence with Paul really won me back, and I was like, okay, you know, this is this is good. Mm. <laughs> and I like that. I like that. Uh, basically, like, you know, having given its temptation to Jesus throughout that sequence, just looks like he's like high on smack, you know, like half the time he's just like sitting there, like you know, just watching people, like, <laughs> you know, like he just seems like he's on drugs. I, I really like that a lot. <laughs> it's, it's good characterization. Um, I like that Jesus is like a mole cell, you know, that's always cool. <laughs> well, yeah, that's his whole thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. and uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, I mean, it's, you know, handsomely shot. You know, you get fast as usual uh, cinematographer yeah. in there. Bull house. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I thought this was, I thought this was really enjoyable, and I, I, was, I was kind of surprised. Uh, I don't know if it ranks towards the top of my Scorsese films. Like, and honestly, if I was to choose one of his like you know more religiously themed movies, I think Silence is probably my favorite of his in that in that mm-hmm. uh, vein. But uh, you know, this is much better than I was expecting because <laughs> I was really expecting it to just be a slog. Um, but uh, you know, there's like some really exciting parts. Like I thought the scene where they like you know march to the temple and uh, are about to overthrow the government was great, and it's really aided by the the Gabriel score, you know. Um, mm. And yeah, I mean, I also thought I was like pretty corny at first, but uh, I feel like I was able to get into it, you know. <laughs> well, especially the the climactic moment of the film. Yeah, I think Gabriel really yeah. takes center stage in making that as effective as it was. Yeah, and he he really the the track that he he made really nails the the feeling of like uh, I don't know like like passion, right? Hmm. The passion of the Christ. Um, 
I also really enjoyed the scene where Jesus turns all the, the wine into, or the water into wine. I thought that was really funny. Mm. <laughs> it's just like holding the cup, like, hey man, come on, chill out. There's wine over there. All that water is wine. Come on. No need to, to hash the good vibes you've got going here. Like, come on. <laughs> Jesus is just like the ultimate like party guy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, basically, you know, at the beginning of the movie, he's just like this angry, like, you know, he's he doesn't know what to do. And then, you know, he hears God's voice and just like, hey, you know what? We should just chill. Love's the way, you know? <laughs> mm. um, you, you talked about the fact that like he uses a lot of... Uh, people that he's used before and that are kind of associated mm. with his work like Harvey Keitel and Harvey yeah. Keitel um, uh, is probably the most notorious example you know, in this film um, given that um, I think his performance was derided by a number of critics and it also <laughs> won like the Golden Razzies Award at <laughs> the time. Insane. like why? <laughs> Um, but I, I liked his performance. Yeah. Like it was it was like it had a bizarre quality, and he looks weird in the film. He sounds <laughs> yeah. weird in that context. But I don't. I, I think it works. Yeah, definitely, definitely uh, fits. Fits the, the scene where like you know he's like the one disciple who who goes over and like kisses his feet and says I did I. I thought that was really powerful. You know, like, mm. I don't know. Um, but you can really you can really feel uh, Scorsese's like. Um, passion for the material and just the the i mean his you passion know, for the christ yeah yeah and uh just his passion for like making a biblical epic like this like, i mean you know obviously if you if you know i think all scorsese is that he's like really influenced by like you know old hollywood cinema i think you could really like feel his his desire to make something that like recaptures that that feeling of his of his youth like watching like biblical epics on screen um mm. and i i find that passion to be very invigorating you know um, so yeah, I would say this is this is pretty good. I was, I was pleasantly surprised. Now you you might have something more to say about this, uh, mm. or to counteract the point I'm going to make, um, because you're more of a Scorsese fan than I am, and you've probably seen much more of his work than I have, maybe. Mm. Um, but uh, though his reputation kind of suggests otherwise, at least in like the the popular conception of Scorsese as a director, I've never found anything that unified about his visual language, mm. uh, even if he often reuses the same techniques and there are certain techniques that are associated with him. He's certainly like fluent in film grammar, if I can use shitty terms like that, but there doesn't seem to be like a singular vision holding the visuals together, if that makes sense. And I don't mean like he's opting for that more invisible classical Hollywood style. Yeah, there's just, there's not... There's not uh, tropes that necessarily unify his entire body of work the same way you do think of. Yeah, but like he definitely like chucks in these kind of showy stylistic flourishes mm. in his films, but there's kind of a self-consciousness about them. And for me, they often stand out and take me out of the films a little bit. Mm. Like he's, And because it's not like unified in some sort of uh, visual structure with the rest of the film... Mm. It just feels like he's throwing in a, a particular technique that he's seen somewhere or that he wants to try. Mm. And it makes me think of the camera more than what's actually happening on screen. It's kind yeah, of more freewheeling it's kind of, it's kind than... It's a Brechtian uh, distanciation effect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, kind of, it's more... It's more f- he seems more freewheeling um, than the more precise directors, like someone like Kubrick or uh, Galaxy Brain Soviet Kubrick, a.k.a. 
Tarkovsky. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's like somebody who's willing to, you know, if, if, if a certain thing strikes him as the right thing to do, he'll just do it. Like, there's no, like... He'll just do yeah. it, yeah. Yeah. Which I think is an appeal, appealing quality, honestly. And I, I think his best films succeed uh, regardless of, of that. I'm, it's more of just an observation yeah. that I have. Uh, and my final point, which is not really... Uh, that pertinent to our discussion about the the merits of this film but at some point during my uh pop music fandom my lifelong pop music fandom um i became a mark for the rediscovered cult act um so there was a period where i was uh buying judy sill records i'm not sure if you're aware of her work um and i still like her stuff quite a lot but her breakout hit was a song called jesus was a Crossmaker." And um, part of the reason she's she became a rediscovered beloved cult figure is she had this kind of warped Christian thing and she had kind of a bizarre personal backstory that went along with the music. Uh-huh. But that, that title always struck me. I was like, Jesus was a crossmaker. That's kind of a weird notion. Um, but anyway, it turns out that she was a huge fan of the novel, oh, The Last Temptation of Christ, that we, and it's actually a reference to that. So that all came together for me. Having now watched this film, so there you go. <laughs> you're you're like the guy at the end of uh, the Usual Suspects dropping the mug and be like, "Oh fuck!" <laughs> is, that, is that right? That's right. You've become Chaz Palminteri. Well, before we uh, move on, we should talk about Bowie's uh, brief role in this. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. The reason we watched this film was Bowie. <laughs> yeah, for as Pontius like five, five minutes of screen time. Five minutes. I liked him quite a lot in this. Yeah, actually. I really enjoyed it too. It's a very well deployed, like stunt yeah. cameo. He's very like um, uh, subdued in it too. You know, mm. it kind of, but it kind of fits like what he's representing that Roman. Yeah, the like pop circumstance for sure. Yeah, yeah. It, it stands to make it. it, it you know, it's, it's a it's a contrast to to Defoe's like very like you know earthly and like lived in performance too. You know. Just yeah. like having him like come on screen and, and talk to him about why he needs to die, you know. Mm. Uh, yeah, I, th- I thought it was I thought it was re- well utilized. Um, yeah, definitely. And uh, I thought that yeah, you know, like whatever whatever direction Scorsese Scorsese gave was obviously the the right one, you know. Mm. And there was uh, yeah, there's actually a bit of news that ties into our discussion about this film. Oh. Um, it was just announced that uh, Paul Schrader, who wrote the screenplay to this film, well, and Martin of. Scorsese will be reuniting to explore the origins of Christianity once more. <laughs> um, you know, I think a TV series or something. Oh, right? God. <laughs> well, uh, I mean, he, he only wrote a draft of it, I think. I, I know that Scorsese himself and... Uh, his his bud uh, Jay Cox are also did uncredited rewrites on it. Though Schrader is the only person who's credited. Yeah, Schrader's credited with the screenplay, but uh, yeah, Scorsese and his his guy, his, his cop. guy. Yeah, who who also uh, co-wrote uh, Silence with them. Hmm. Yeah. His Cox, come on, man. Um, but yeah, yeah. So apparently they're they're cooking up something. Sounds great. A three-year series. What even? What the hell does this mean? <laughs> I don't know what that means. Yeah, I didn't actually read the article. I just saw the headline. 
Yeah, it sounds, sounds like it'll probably be bad. Um, it's called The Apostles and the Apographa. Hmm. Well, both and both Scorsese and Schrader have uh, movies that are coming out uh, pretty soon, I think. Let's see. Okay. Uh, well, should we move on to uh, trivia? Adaptation of Christ attracted much controversy upon its release, but this was not confined solely to uh, the extremely puritanical American society. It faced similar uh, similar controversy abroad, including in France, where a uh, far right Christian organization attacked a cinema with a bomb. Um, mm-hmm. But especially at the festival at which it premiered, uh, which was the Venice International Film Festival. Can you tell me which famous Italian filmmaker, come right-wing politician, come possible pedophile, pulled his film out of the festival's 1988 edition in response to Last Temptation's inclusion? Uh, that would be um, Zaffarelli. Ah, you are correct. So I'll take a drink. Did he become a, a politician? Yep. Yeah, he was a senator for the uh, uh, right-wing party in, in Italy. Wow. Yeah. yeah, I didn't actually know that. Mm-hmm. Well, I spent more time on his Wikipedia page than you did. <laughs> All right. Uh, you got a question for me? I do. Um, the Last Temptation of Christ was originally slated to begin production in which year? Oh, Jesus. Uh, 1982. Close, 1983. Oh, God Take it. a drink, my friend. Uh, no, my questions seem so easy. Oh, whatever. It's too late. Universal agreed to make Last Temptation, which is a long-time project, a passion project for, for Scorsese, in exchange for him directing a more commercial project. Can you tell me which uh, project this eventually morphed into? The Color Purple? <laughs> what? The Color of Money? <laughs> the Color Purple? <laughs> uh, you're incorrect. The Color of Money actually came out before this. Uh, the okay. answer is Cape Fear. I was thinking of, like, from the original production, 1983. No, no. Okay. So originally it was set up somewhere other than Universal, I think. Oh, okay, right. Okay. I'll take a drink. <laughs> color of purple. The color of purple of money. Um, okay. Which British musician did Scorsese at one point consider for the role of Judas? For Judas? Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, man. Uh, fuck me. Uh, Ray Davies, right? That's right, yeah. Isn't okay. that kind of I could, bizarre? I couldn't remember, I could, I could remember because I did that. He also, Sting was also supposed to play Pontius Pilate, but I couldn't remember which yes. one was which. So, yeah. <laughs> that would have been so weird. I'll take a drink. Has Ray that would Davies be great. actually been in a movie? <laughs> I would say he has, yeah. All right. And here's my last question. One of the things the Last Temptation is most famous for is its popular soundtrack, which is composed by Peter Gabriel. However, this was not Gabriel's first score. Can you tell me which Nicolas Cage vehicle constituted his first original score? Which Nicolas Cage vehicle? Wow. Mm-hmm. Yep. 
Hmm. It's not Peggy Sue got married. It's not. Do you want me to give you a hand? <laughs> yes, please. Okay. Uh, the director who directed this film also went on to direct a, uh, a film that we'll be covering as part of our music project uh, not too long from now. Oh, yeah. So there's a film. I kind of knew that there was definitely like some sort of kinks film that Ray Davis directed and it's called return to waterloo from 1984 <laughs> with tim roth in it and ray davis has a cameo in it at least and he's right. probably i'm sure he acts in other films but like i was about to say ray davis is a hundred percent the type of like pop star who would have made his vanity film so there you go anyway what was your question uh, some Nicolas Cage film directed by a guy who also directed some music film that we will feature on this podcast. Mm-hmm. Hmm. You had another hint? Are you allowed to give me this many hints? <laughs> I can give you as many hints as I want. Uh, I just don't All think right, you go. know the film. Go. Well, go, go ahead and guess. I don't ever guess. Okay. Uh, the co-star is Matthew Modine. <laughs> I can't think of a film from the 80s that would fit the bill with Nicolas Cage or Matthew Modine. <laughs> right, are you inputting no guess? I give up. Right, the correct answer is Bernie. Bernie? <laughs> Bertie. Birdie. I've never heard of it. Well, that's, that's your own fault. All right, taking a drink. You ready? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Barbara Hershey infamously mm. changed her stage name in the mid-70s following a breakup with David Carradine. Yeah. To what did she change her name? Oh, man, I have no idea. Seagull. <laughs> Seagull? Yeah. <laughs> Seagull? Barbara Seagull? Or just I'm not Seagull? sure if it was just like the way the Wikipedia page frames it is like she changed her name to Seagull, but it might have been like Barbara Seagull. I'm not sure. So she didn't do like the Prince thing? I don't know. But either way, I would have accepted Barbara Seagull or Seagull or anything with Seagull in it. Well, I didn't read that far, unfortunately. I'll take a drink. Take a drink. All right, uh, should we move on to Stardust now? Let's do it. I'm definitely David Jones. These are my authentic tones. Nietzsche is my teacher. Let's sit back and all right, Stardust. Okay, so um, Stardust is about David Bowie, the musician. Um, it's about a period of his life um, following the recording of uh, and the release of The Man Who Sold the World, mm. which was struggling a bit commercially following his success with uh, Space Oddity on the previous record. And uh, he's going to go on an American tour. Mm-hmm. And he's going to come up with the idea for his Ziggy Stardust persona. Mm. Somewhere what, along what, the what about What about Hunky Dory? What about Hunky Dory? That, that album does not exist in the universe of this film. What? But that's what the, the film focuses on, on this particular tour, that particular moment uh, in his career. And uh, along for the ride is uh, his U.S. publicist, Ron Oberman, played by 
podcasting legend Mark Marin. But but it seems like, you know, uh, I mean, as far as I know, Bowie didn't really suffer from any serious mental illness, except for like drug-induced psychosis. So I'm sure the film, you know, it wouldn't take that like standard uh, um, like biopic tradition of being like, oh, this guy's a genius, but he, maybe he's crazy. Is that is that right? Well, we'll just have to find out once we uh, broaden our discussion beyond the initial synopsis that I've provided. Well, do you have any uh, question you want to ask me, or should we just get into it? Did you like it? Uh, no, I did not. What? <laughs> yeah. What, what did you think about it? That's all you got? <laughs> okay. Uh, well, Hugh, um, to be honest, uh, much like Last Temptation of Christ, I was not looking forward to watch this movie at all. Uh, but unlike Last Temptation of Christ, uh, I did not enjoy it. Um, it wasn't as like offensive to me. You know, me, a uh, died-in-the-wool Bowie fan, as I thought it would be. It was just mostly boring. Um, and he did pretty facile about dealing with his life. Uh, just the standard uh, biopic thing of wanting to condense someone's art to one specific event and one specific theme. And uh, I thought it was pretty dumb. Um, there are some moments of unintentional hilarity that I'm sure we'll talk about. Besides that, I thought, I'm not clicking anything. I thought that, I thought this was a total drag, mm. and I extremely—no pun intended—I extremely did not enjoy watching it. I thought the performances were tenured and uh, un- inaccurate to the people that were being betrayed. Uh, and uh, I uh, thought that its attempt to conjure up the 1970s was a total failure. <laughs> and I found the sort of indie uh, art film tropes that it uh, frequently indulged in to be obnoxious. And uh, I thought the film was shot too dark. So sometimes it was hard to make out even when I was watching. So that is my review of 2020's Stardust. Mm. How, how about you? <clears throat> I think I think we've both become aficionados of bad music biopics. <laughs> mm. Certainly, I have. Um, and uh, in this case, our interest, or at least my interest, lay in finding out what exactly this film was going to do, given its extremely limited parameters. Right. Mm. So, first of all, the fact that it just focuses on what is a mere footnote in Bowie's career. You know, this brief tour where he he got the idea for Ziggy Stardust and then didn't follow through until the album after. <laughs> and secondly, the fact that the film did not have, uh, you know, the permission to use any of Bowie's music and was not sanctioned by his estate in any way, shape or form. Hmm. Um, so so what, does, what does Gabriel Range give us? So as you said, this kind of tedious, slow burn art film or wannabe art film Centered on a singularly uncharismatic kind of simpy <laughs> Bowie, <laughs> played by uh, Johnny Flynn. You know, remember how remember how Bowie is famously in real life a, a total alpha. Well, what, <laughs> what this all presupposes is what if he were a beta? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, along for the ride, Mark Maron, as I said. <laughs> <laughs> and because because the film can't show the usual kind of rock and roll rise and fall trajectory nor even show its subject composing or performing any of his uh, signature songs. <laughs> or, or apparently show any of his albums out for work either. <laughs> no, no. It leans in on the, um, 
the pat psychology. So uh, in this case, to be more specific than you were, his relationship to his schizophrenic half-sibling and his fears that he's going to develop the same condition, or at least what this film um, projects upon Bowie, mm. uh, and how this ties into his famous chameleon act. Mm. Right. And it's no, less, it's no less boilerplate in its psychology than any boilerplate biopic that has a more conventional narrative. It's just the presentation that's different. It's just the film wants to be an art film, not a jukebox musical, and it also can't be a Which jukebox means musical. It's, uh, less less fun. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, so there there is kind of something fascinating about a biopic that presents its subject as both significantly uglier and significantly less charismatic than they were in real life. <laughs> and I found this especially amusing in, amusing in the early scene with um, Bowie and Mark Bolan at, a, at some party. <laughs> so, look, Johnny Flynn uh, as a person is not unattractive, I would say, but he doesn't have that striking appeal that, that Bowie had. No. Um, but the, the guy they got to play Bolan is so, like, grotesque in comparison <laughs> to the real Mark Bolan. Yeah. It's, it's insane. It's baffling. It's- it's so, it like it's borderline anti-Semitic, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but but we have this scene purporting to show off two of the most handsome pop stars of their, yeah. their day, really. Yeah. By way of these two extremely unappealing performances. <laughs> Even just leaving aside their physical appearance, they're both kind of un- unappealing in the way they act. Mm, and there's true. this unintentional irony in the way that it covers the whole Mark Bolan aspect to Bowie's story <laughs> like he's put pre- Boland's portrayed as this like arrogant pretentious asshole at a party which is not necessarily inaccurate no. but he's he was far from being merely that you know he's a bit sneer sneery about Bowie and Bowie's record company is like we want you to do a hit song like T-Rex right mm. and then um <laughs> Bowie finally comes up with the Ziggy Starter stuff and performs live. We have that amazing shot of like bowling in the crowd. <laughs> <Bowling>. <laughs> Going, oh my it. god. Damn. Damn. <laughs> Damn, I, I failed. I lost. Like, I gotta hand it to him. <laughs> and then pres- presumably he went off to die in a motorcycle accident right after the concert. <laughs> a, a car accident. Oh, but my, the my, funny my. thing was the the Ziggy Stardust record was clearly influenced by Bolin. It wasn't just like a, an, an imitation of T-Rex, but it was clearly part of that sound that, that T-Rex yeah. pioneered. Yeah, and of course, as we've talked about before, T-Rex and, and Bowie had a very symbiotic relationship. Uh, yeah, the real relationship was much more interesting yes. um, from their origins as London mods to the fact that um, after Bolin died and there was issues with... Um, Gloria Jones, who was the mother of Bolin's son, getting access to the money from the estate. Bowie, like, funded his whole education and upbringing, so... Pretty pretty cool. Pretty cool. It's definitely not, like, the, the kind of, like, lame uh, rivalry where just Bowie yeah. crushes Bolin <laughs> as this film presents, and he's, yeah. like, just this loser. 
Yeah. I don't know. That, funny, that's such a strange. That, I mean, that, was, that was the part of the movie that I enjoyed the most. Was, just yeah, it was that funny. Just shot of, like, you know, watching Bowie come out, or quote-unquote Bowie come out and perform, like, a shitty Yarford song really poorly. And then just... Yeah, yeah, that's them. the funny thing. So, they like, they obviously have to do something on the musical yeah. front in this film. They can't yeah. get access to his, his catalogue. So, they do what what they did in um, that Jimi Hendrix biopic that Andre 3000 is in. Which is apparently also terrible. <laughs> but uh, it got a better reputation than this. Um, That's true. But where they use covers that the real artist would have performed at the time because they can license mm. the covers as opposed to the original material. Mm. So the Yardbird song that, um, that Bowie performs here appeared on pinups. And is also terrible in that incarnation. Yeah, yeah. Penance is a terrible album. <laughs> so, like, like this is like the culmination of the film. This is like the end of the film. It's all building up to like this is the, showing us what the the end of Bowie's journey. This this is where he attains yeah. his his fame, his his you know popularity, the the stuff that he's going to be remembered for. Then he comes out and, and performs this very limp cover. <laughs> it's a bad cover of a bad cover, basically. <laughs> but this is this is why it's so funny because it just cuts the ball and be like, "Damn, he, he fucking did it. He he beat me." <laughs> and you're like, "What?" <laughs> <laughs> so that that was really enjoyable. I also enjoyed the the weird scene where where uh, Bowie picks up that woman and has sex with her. <laughs> like, <laughs> as portrayed, why would anyone want to have sex with him? Like he's just like a loser. Like, <laughs> I also laughed because because basically the movie uh, this this is its, its entirety of its thesis. You know, early Bowie, uh, very influenced by his fear of schizophrenia. Okay, um, that's why he had songs like "Oh, wait, wait for it." All, all the madmen. Can you believe it? Can you believe it, Hugh? <laughs> uh, and then, uh, you know, he watches his brother go through per- persona, dramatic persona therapy. And it's like, oh, you know, that doesn't seem like such a bad idea. Maybe I should do that in all my music from now on. <laughs> <laughs> That's 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 the, that's why that's the thesis it develops. It's like literally, it's like simple as that, you know. Uh, yeah. So, uh, pretty pretty wretched movie, you know. Overall. Yeah. Yeah, it is terrible. It's a difficult. It's a difficult watch. Like it definitely has funny things that you can extract from it upon having viewed it, but actually sitting through it is not recommended. I would yeah. say. Well, it's it's got a very serious like tone, you know. Yeah. It's it's kind of hard to enjoy it on that level. It's just weird seeing Mary in a movie like this. Too. Like, what what went to be cast in this? Like, well, I just, I just don't get it. Like, <laughs> just just shut the fuck up and go back to podcasting. Just <laughs> um. So yeah, this is this is a uh, uh, pretty unenjoyable. I mean, there's definitely worse movies out there, but there are very few movies that I've seen that just feel like less of less of anything at all. Mm. So uh, yeah, I, I give it a zero out of, out of six. What do you what do you think? Uh, out of six? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I derived some enjoyment out of the experience, mm. even if it was at the film's expense. So I can't give it zero. Mm. I give it one and a half out of six. What? That's there's no half points. There's no half points. Okay, one out of six. Okay, there we go. Round down. All right. Well, uh, we've 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 uh, you know 
it did it did stardust. Uh, we we he dug it up to bury it again. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so we uh, do some trivia before we move on to bonus features. Let's do it. What is the name of the T-Rex song that Bowie's record company keeps referring to when pushing Bowie to give them a hit? Oh, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> it is Ride a White Swan. Right, take a big gulp of water. All right, are you ready for your first question? Yes, please. Not content with tarnishing the image of one English celebrity, Johnny Flynn has been cast as another famous Brit in the upcoming film Operation Mincemeat. Can you tell me which novelist he is set to portray? Hmm, I've read nothing about this, so this this will be a complete guess. English novelist, Mm -hmm. Johnny Flynn. Hmm. Johnny Flynn. Remember the title, Operation Mincemeat. Operation Mincemeat. You know is, is there a clue in the title or would it not be clear, but just based on the title? If you know what that is, then it, it would probably be pretty clear, but if you don't. Oh, well, I don't know what that is. Okay. So I'm going to say, um, uh, I'm going to say Tolkien. <laughs> no, no. Maybe if I told you what Operation Minspeed is, it would have given you an idea. Anyway, I didn't get it. So you can okay. explain it all. The answer is Ian Fleming. Oh, yeah. That, I probably should have guessed that. And Operation Midspeed was this uh, plan to distract the uh, Germans and the Italians from knowing where the Allies were going to invade in Italy by taking a, a body of a homeless person and like pretending that he was like a British uh, officer and putting like fake papers and stuff in his in, on his person and throwing it into the water. So it's like a weekend at Bernie style farce. <laughs> yeah, I mean, presumably. <laughs> but uh, drink, Sounds great. Drink, up, drink, drink up, fucker. Mm-hmm. Alright. My next question. What is the Ziggy Stardust style pseudonym that Mark Bolan later adopted for a nineteen seventy-four T-Rex record? <laughs> a zip alloy, right? Zinc nope. alloy? Zinc alloy. Oh, fuck me. Zip alloy. I was gonna give you some bold zip gun. Which was the record immediately following that one. <laughs> was it Zeke Alloy, The Riders of Tomorrow? Is that right? And The Hidden Riders of Tomorrow. Right. right. <laughs> I guess I, give you, I, I can give you a point. You corrected no. yourself. No, no, no correction. I, I'll, I'll take my drink. All right. Okay. That's, that's the harsh rules of Drunken Mastermind. Just like watching Jackie mm. get tortured by one of his uh, mentors in Drunken Master. It's knockoffs. <laughs> um... Okay. This is Mark Maron's second Project A plus film. Do you remember what the first was? (laughs) 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 I believe in our. um, I'll give you a hint. Uh, I believe in our uh, in our awards. (laughs) You awarded this film uh, the film that you uh, forgot that you had watched. So. Well. And, uh, <laughs> and so to, to give you some credit, I also had forgot that he was in this until I looked it up on his Wikipedia page. So, 
<laughs> so it's a film I've forgotten on at least one occasion. Mm -hmm. And uh, it feels like I've forgotten it on this occasion also. I'm trying to even think of forgettable films that we watched. <laughs> well, let's give you something. I can't think of anything Mark Barron was in. Okay, it came out, came out last year. <laughs> yeah. He's a supporting role. <laughs> Are you seeing mm. the point? Or do you have a guess? Yeah, I'm seeing the point. Okay, I'll, g I'll give you another hit now that, now that you've lost the point. <laughs> Lobster! He was in that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Apparently. <Where? laughs> I don't know. Actually, now that I remember, he like, plays a journalist that uh, oh. Spencer like, hooks up with at some point. Would not have remembered that. <laughs> That's a good question. I, I'm giving myself a, a point for that one. All right, my final question. Mm -hmm. David Bowie name checked. <laughs> David Bowie name checked T-Rex in a hit song released around the time of the Ziggy Stardust record. Do you know the name of this song? Uh, is it all, all the young dudes? I don't know. It was. Oh, you sick. got it. I I, uh, I I kind of figured based on your vague uh, phrasing about whether or not he had released it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, drink up, sucker. Yeah, there you go. Do you have one more question? I do. All right. <clears throat> Julian Richings plays Bowie's manager at the time, Tony DeFries. Can you tell me how much older Richie is now than DeFries would have been during the time the movie takes place, which was 1971? <laughs> it's an impossible question. I, I don't know why I wrote it down. Wait. What was the name of the actor? Sorry, there's a jet like flying past. I can't really hear you very well. Julian Richie's. Ah, oh, so he was the manager. Yeah. And uh, he's older than the character he portrayed, but by how much? Is yes. your question? Yes. I'm going to say 15 years. Ooh, more than that. I'll give you another hint just because it's a hard one. 22 years. Mm, the correct answer is 26 years. So. Wow. <laughs> it's pretty, pretty uh, elderly. All right, and that'll do it for Stardust, I think. So we've got to bonus features. Let's do it. Bonus features, bonus, bonus features, bonus features, bonus, bonus features. So I watched a documentary called The Illumination of Jim Woodring. Mm. Jim Woodring is the artist responsible for the uh, comic Frank. The wordless comic Frank. I have no idea what that is. Um, uh, some of the uh, treasury editions of that uh, that particular comic bear forwards by one Francis Ford Coppola, who's a fan. Who does that? I uh, directed The Godfather, The Godfather Part Two, and The Godfather. I, I've never, I never heard of that. Okay. Oh, he's a director. Um, he's the dad of um, Sofia Coppola. Um, that theme sounds, sounds kind of familiar I'm not sure about Sophia but uh, what about Roman Coppola is he related to 
No, not related. Okay. Oh, then I, I guess I don't know who that is. Sorry. Anyway, so this is like a documentary about an artist and uh, it's not very good. <laughs> okay, fair enough. It's like, it's like of some interest if you have any interest in the subject matter. Mm. But uh, no. even then I found it uh, not especially compelling. It's like built around... A lot of it is, is built around a presentation that Jim Woodring gave himself, like a, a TED Talk type thing. Mm. I mean, just a talk. It doesn't have to be a TED Talk style thing, but you know what I mean. I do. Um, I mean. And that kind of framing structure uh, felt kind of limiting, and it didn't feel like much of a documentary at all, mm. given that like half of it is just his talk, you know. Anyway. Um, I watched a short called Pool Sharks, which is a silent short featuring WC Fields. I uh, hadn't ever seen any of his work. A bunch of his stuff cropped up on the Criterion channel. Um, so I decided to take a look. I followed that with uh, Pool Sharks hasn't got much to recommend it, I would say. It's got some, some fun kind of stop motion pool cue, pool ball shenanigans stuff but other than that it's not much uh followed that up with the golf specialist uh, which is a sound short and um although he does do physical comedy he's probably more known for his uh verbal facility and the one-liners and such the golf specialist has a good bit where he's like trying to steal a kid's money jar uh it's okay uh, mm. Then I watched another of his shorts called The Fatal Glass of Beer, which is kind of this bizarre parody of um, uh, a certain style of uh, Hollywood melodrama of the time and particularly ones in the milieu of, like, wilderness films where they're, like, out in the wilds, uh, like in the Yukon or something. Um, and it's actually really funny. So it's a good, it's a good amusing parody of... Uh, a lot of melodramatic tropes. Um, one of his strongest shorts, if not his most characteristic. And then watch the more characteristic uh, WC Field shorts, The Pharmacist and The Barbershop. Um, I remember liking both of them. I don't remember much else about them. <coughs> and then this all led up to watching uh, one of his most celebrated feature films, The Bank Dick, which is good stuff. Um, but uh, I also don't remember it very well. There you go. That's maybe, my review. Maybe, maybe a memory problem. Uh, then I watched uh, a 1971 film by the name of McCabe and Mrs. Miller, the mm. celebrated Robert Altman film. Wait, by the director of Quintet? That's right. And uh, this is probably one of the best uh, Altman films I have seen of his, uh, and it is one of his more celebrated. What about films. okay? What about one of the best Altman films that that's not one of his? The Bank Dick. <laughs> What's well, an Altman film? Is it? It's not one of his. Yeah, but uh, you said <laughs> you see, that's one of the best Altman films that you see. That's one of his. So. What also you see that are one of his? <laughs> the bank dick. That's not that's not an Altman film. Well, it's not one of his. That's true, but, but it is an Altman film in in a sense. No, no, no. Anyway, I watched McCabe and Miss Miller. <laughs> you know that Leonard Cohen film. The film. 
The cinematography is amazing. <laughs> uh, worth watching for that alone. And uh, uh, <clears throat> what else? What else? What else? Uh, I actually think Warren Beatty's really good in this. I think it's one of his mm. strongest performances and that it, the way that it um, twists uh, the kind of movie star presence that he brings to the film is really mm. effective. Julie Christie's also really good, um, as is the rest of the cast. Uh, but it has a great mood, great atmosphere, and um, it's called, you know, it kind of slots into the revisionist Western category, but it feels quite distinct from any revisionist Western I've, I've seen. Mm. It feels very much its own thing, and uh, highly recommended if you can uh, track it down on the Criterion channel where it was just added. Yeah, I probably can find it somewhere. Um, I then watched a film that you liked from a couple of years back called Support the Girls from mm. the co-writer of um, Lady and the Tramp. And um, seemed all right, and I kind of fell asleep for a little bit of it, so <laughs> I give it three stars. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Finally, I watched the BGs colon How Can You Mend a Broken Heart. Why? And um, like most documentaries about the BGs that I've seen, or caught glimpses of in the past. Um, it gallops over the early phase of their career that I find the most interesting, mm. not just because uh, they were in Australia for much of it, um, but I quite like the material they put out in the 60s, like the kind of kitsch Beatles knockoff stuff that they did. Um, and uh, I like hearing more about that, but they... they they zoom right past that phase and spend most of the time predictably on uh, the disco era. Um, and uh, it's, a, it's a pretty boilerplate documentary. I, I watched it because I heard someone on a podcast somewhere recommend it. Um, I was like, oh, the new BG's documentary is really good. And I don't know why anyone would, would say that. This is just like any other documentary is to say pretty mediocre documentaries suck what's the deal there's, there's some okay ones there are some okay ones but there are a lot of ones that are just like yeah this is like a tv <laughs> everyone thing. about a musician is terrible besides like don't look back yeah pretty much and uh anyway you know, that's all Ziggy, i watched the spider some more is pretty good that's more of like a concert film than an actual documentary yeah there are some like there are some decent concert films that's not really that's also a lot of terrible genre. ones but that's true Hey, you want me to talk about what I watched? Yes, please. Well, I watched like at least 30 films, so. Jesus Christ. <laughs> you can do like a second per film. No. So 30 I'm gonna, seconds. I'm going to take, take as much time as I want. I'm giving you plenty of time to stew, so why don't you shut the fuck up and listen? All right. <clears throat> so, I started with uh, Along the Coast, uh, which is the Agnes Varda short film. I believe her, one of her first shorts. Um, which, to be honest, I don't remember much of. <laughs> it is, as he said, a documentary. Um, but, uh, you know, it's pretty enjoyable. It's just about the... Uh, um, All right, next. Riviera. I'm, I'm going to take it at my own pace. You, you can I don't care dick. what it's about. <laughs> he sucked my dick. Uh, I watched uh, Jackie Chan's The Young Master, which is on the Criteria Channel uh, as well, uh, which I quite mm. enjoyed. 
Um, despite, I don't know if this is a Criterion Channel exclusive thing, but it has a very strange soundtrack, um, which kind of spoils the fun mood a little bit because it's a lot of like, uh, it's either like really goofy, like, oh, they're happy, they're doing comedy uh, uh, classical music, or it's like very doleful, like <laughs> mm. classical music, which I thought was very strange. Um, but this has, it, it, it might be my favorite one of Jackie's like period films. Uh, it's got some great stuff in it. Um, and you know what? Uh, love seeing uh, Yuan Biao uh, show up. Love that guy. Uh, it's, good. it's good. It's a good film. I'm not going to go into it that much, but it's good stuff. Uh, I rewatched Vagabond, which remains uh, one of Varda's absolute best. I watched a uh, uh, sort of making up documentary about Vagabond called Vagabond Remembrances, Interviews, Notes, and Comments. And another film that she directed that's related to Vagabond called The Story of an Old Lady, both of which are pretty uh, well worth watching. I watched a uh, slightly racist film, which is uh, Orson Welles' Oath. Sorry to stop you there, but before you move on past Vagabond Mm. and uh, related material... Uh, I, I just want to say that uh, the discussion we had about Vagabond on the episode of Project Day Plus in which it featured, one of our strongest. Really? Just, uh, you're probably not up to that episode yet, but uh, you've got a treat nope. in store for you. <laughs> oh, it's going to be terrible, isn't it? <laughs> it's one of our strongest. That's all I'll say. I can't tell if you're being ironic or not. Um, I see who you are. So I watched uh, Orson Welles' Othello, which is pretty great. Uh, the only flaws that, you know, Welles is in blackface for the entire movie. <laughs> which is very, uh, very distracting. Uh, but it is uh, an amazing feat of crafting film in some of the most abjective circumstances, I think. Um, and uh, I, it's a film that, when you learn, it's like just absolutely insane production history. Uh, becomes all the more impressive and it's just got some very stunning sequences and images and um, even if the Shakespeare gets kind of lost uh, who who cares you know <laughs> um, all right then I uh, I, I uh, acquired the recent criteria and release of uh, most of uh, Wong Kar Wai's films and so I uh, decided to watch As Tears Go By uh, which is his debut film and a pretty enjoyable uh, gangster melodrama uh, starring Andy Wow and uh, Jackie Chung. Uh, it's it's kind of typical, but it has some very uh, fantastic slow motion photography. Uh, it's definitely a little more generic than the style that uh, Wong would subsequently develop, but uh, I think it's uh, pretty enjoyable on its own terms. It has a pretty good, uh, you know, I mean, <laughs> I... At the, end of the end of the day, you're watching, it's it's an 80s movie that's about, you know, Hong Kong, one of the most cinematic cities in the world. And uh, that texture, that flavor is just really enjoyable. I think you can agree. Um, so definitely enjoyed that. Uh, I also watched his uh, follow-up film to that, which is Days of Being Wild, which I'd never seen before. Have you seen that one? I don't think so. It's 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 definitely, uh, it's, it's really great. Um I mean, it feels more a piece of, of, you know, it feels a piece of uh, In the Mood for Love. There's a lot of, like, similar imagery that it indulges in, at least from what I can remember from seeing In the Mood for Love, like, five years ago. Hmm. <laughs> um, but uh, it has a very uh, compelling Leslie Chung performance in the center. 
and he plays the sort of disaffected uh, playboy, and it just sort of goes through his love life, his attempts to find his real parents, and uh, just has this great atmosphere, this this languorous mood, this you know feeling of of of, of watching the, these images rush by you, and uh, also has Andy Wow on it, so good stuff, um, and Maggie Chung, so. Oh, and also Maggie Chuck is in uh, S tiers go by too. Um, okay, well after that, I followed that up with rewatching Chucky Express, which remains just a uh, absolutely uh, breathtaking and uh, moving piece of uh, mo- motion picture cinema. Um, I think you'll agree with me there. Uh, yeah, sorry. Oh, I skipped over one film, but uh, it's a rewatch, so I won't go into too much detail, which is. Uh, Akira Kurosawa's uh, Yojimbo, uh, uh, just an amazingly entertaining film, <laughs> uh, and a film that you know it's just it just gets better and better every time you watch it. I think uh, you like you, you like Yojimbo. All right. Um, it's got this just just breathtaking, uh, swaggering Toshiro Mifune uh, performance at the center of it. I also watched uh, um, its follow-up film, uh, Sanjuro, which I had never seen before. Um, but uh, which I also quite enjoyed. It doesn't have quite the same. It's got a much uh, light-hearted tone than Yojimbo does. Um, and there's more like uh, you know stops for for jokes and stuff. Um, but uh, it's still a very compelling film in its own right, and ends on this extremely uh, kind of depressing and melancholy note. So good stuff. Um, I rewatched the tale of Zatoichi. Uh, and I decided to follow that up with uh, <laughs> a film called uh, The Taste of Being Dumb, <laughs> which, uh, as the title might suggest, is, is nominally a parody of um, uh, uh, Days of Being Wild, but is more of a riff on uh, uh, <laughs> As Tears Go By, without any sort of stylistic quirks at all, but... Uh, it's this, uh, you know, Hong Kong comedy film starring uh, Tony Wee Young, uh, Chi Wa, and uh, Jackie Chung. And uh, they play these two uh, triad members who are incompetent uh, and basically get the label of being jinxes assigned to them because they keep on weeding accidentally to the death of their bosses. And then um, <laughs> basically this, like, uh, triad who's obsessed with, like, numerology and, and tarot and stuff uh, has this like blood ritual with them, and they become like his personal bodyguards uh, until everything goes wrong. Uh, and it's you know it's it's got the amusing quality of a Wong Jing film, uh, and uh, has this very uh, very strange use of like uh, generic like Keystone Cops like comedy music, <laughs> which I thought was very odd. <laughs> but uh, you know there's some, there's some pretty funny jokes. Uh, when you, you know, when you get you got movie stars like Jackie Chung and uh, Tony Lee Young in there, you just can't lose, you know? All right. I also decided to watch uh, The Tales of Edoichi Continues, which we are, I've already talked about. I watched uh, Ashes of Time, which is pretty good. Uh, I rewatched uh, Love on Delivery with one of my friends. Good stuff. Um, yeah, yeah. It's just an extremely uh, funny movie. <laughs> Um, I watched uh, <laughs> uh, The New Tale of Zatoichi, uh, which is the first uh, color film uh, in the Zatoichi series. It might be my favorite one of the bunch so far. 
because basically make Satoichi's life seem like uh, living hell. Basically, the way these movies work is, you know, either either someone from Satoichi's past or uh, someone from a previous movie, you know, gets introduced. Uh, and then Zanoichi has to kill them. <laughs> and uh, basically it makes his life seem miserable. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's all these uh, women who, you know, manage to make themselves uh, fall in love with him despite the, despite his, uh, like, you know, uh, uh, many flaws. And then he always has to break their hearts at the end because he has to resort to violence. Um, and there's, there's actually a part of this movie that I thought was very moving. Um, and I was really surprised by that fact. So that's the, the uh, new tale of Zatoichi. Uh, then I watched uh, The Eagle Shooting Heroes, which um, basically there are uh, three films that came out of the production of uh, the very prolonged production of Ashes of Time, uh, which were Chucky Express, Fallen Angels, which I also rewatched, I forgot to mention earlier. Uh, and then this movie, which was made specifically uh, to recoup some of the extreme uh, budget that went into Ashes of Time, and is a uh, parody of the source material upon which uh, Ashes of Time is based, which is the uh, Legend of Condor Heroes book series. And, what are you um, clicking? Nothing. I'm not clicking anything. Uh, and this is an extremely, like <laughs> extremely zany uh, period comedy starring all the cast from Ashes of Time in somewhat different roles. And uh, it's got several very amusing gags, and I really enjoyed it a lot. Um, I followed that up with Zatoichi the Fugitive, which is a pretty decent uh, entry in the Zatoichi f- uh, franchise. And then I decided to end my cinematic journey this, this, these last couple of weeks by watching Akira Kurosawa's High and Well. Uh, which honestly, I think might be my favorite Kurosawa that I've seen thus far. Uh, it's this extremely riveting, um, I guess you'd call it like a class thriller, really, uh, mm. about a the um, uh, after effects that happened after a, a kidnapper attempts to kidnap a, the son of a rich uh, women shoe magnate, uh, played by Tishiro Mifune. Uh, this is actually the first, um, like, modern day Kurosawa film that I had seen and uh, I really ended up enjoying it a lot. It's got these two just absolutely fantastic performances, you know, as you might expect from uh, Tishiro Mifune and also from, uh, it is kind of funny that like, you know, this film and also Yojimbo, I guess Sinjiro too, they kind of like have, you know, Kurosawa's three like main lead actors all converge together because all three of them, you get Tishiro Mifune, uh, Tetsuya Nakadai and, um, uh, uh, Takeshi Shibura, who, you know, isn't in much of the film, but is still there. Uh, mm. And I just, you know, I just I just love hanging out in this world. And it's uh, just a beautiful film. Uh, it's just uh, completely expertly crafted. It's Kurosawa working in some, it's something of, I mean, it feels akin to something like Fritz Lang's M, I think. Um, and then it's all about the procedure of the case. Um, and also just about presenting this uh total like uh laboratory like sample slice of of japanese society um during the the 1960s and uh it has an extremely affecting kind of abrupt ending that i thought was uh, really great and uh, uh really sort of showed you where kurosawa's sympathies lie you know and mm. uh i um i really i really enjoyed it a lot and uh 
Uh, it kind of made me. Um, I, I, I also listened to the. Uh, I actually watched Sanjuro and Yurujimbo twice each because I watched the or I watched them with the uh, commentary tracks that are available on the uh, Criterion releases. And the guy who uh, uh, did him, I, who I thought was a pretty, you know, was a pretty um, well-informed uh, uh, commentator. I kind of described Yojimbo as this, like fantasy of the destruction of capitalism to some degree. I was like, okay, I, I, I guess I can kind of see that. But uh, that kind of became clearer to me after watching High and Well to some degree, which is, again, all about class and uh, class resentment. And mm-hmm. uh, I, thought it was, I thought it was really enjoyable. So good stuff. That's, that's High and Well. All right, brother, are you ready for a Drag on Forever? <laughs> I am. Drag on forever, I'll be fine. Drag on forever, anytime. Uh-huh. Go. Okay, today's topic on Drag on Forever, the segment in which one of us talks about a topic of uh, choosing for five minutes straight with uh, possible contributions from the other person, although it's not mandated, is uh, Crunchy Cheetos versus Twisties. <laughs> now, I have spoken about Cheetos on a previous segment of Drag on Forever, um, but this will be different different in that I'll be speaking about the uh, crunchy variant, the default variant, I believe, when people say Cheetos in America, they mean the crunchy one, right? Not the puffy one. Um, would you agree with that? Is that a correct? Accurate? No, I actually would not agree with you. I think, I think they're both equally prominent. But like if someone just said Cheetos, actually, the image in your mind, head. I think my mind would be the puffy ones. Yeah, but that's because you prefer the puffy ones. But on the no, last no, honest, Dragon honestly, Forever, think, you specifically told ones. me I think it'd be the puffy ones. You told me the opposite on the last Dragon Forever. But anyway, whatever. <laughs> there are two types of American Cheetos. Well, I'll put it like this because if you buy a bag of Cheetos, right? Yeah. The the ones that aren't like labeled anything special are the puffy ones. Really? But if you buy one that's crunchy, that then you have to buy yeah, they're Cheetos like crunchy. Hmm, okay. Anyway. That doesn't necessarily mean that the crunchy Cheetos are less popular. Yeah, yeah, I okay. think the default, anyway, the default any, would be the puffy ones. Anyway, anyway. Um, on the last uh, Dragon Forever in which I discussed this, I talked about exp- my experiences with the puffy one because that variant is available in any Australian supermarket. Mm. Whereas the crunchy one isn't. And the reason for that is that it is basically the same concept as a beloved Australian... Um, chip called twisties um and they're all owned by the same international conglomerate so it doesn't matter there's no reason that cheetos need to introduce crunchy cheetos in australia because there's already twisties and there's already a market for it and they're already getting the money for it so whatever but anyway um i did want to eventually try the crunchy cheetos so i could compare them to australian twisties and see how how they compare and my conclusion is that the texture is very, very similar, and the visual look of it. The color is a little different. The Australian twisties are yellow, are yellower. I believe the Cheetos are more of a kind of artificial orange kind of color. That's right. And there is a difference in the taste. Um, and the most pronounced difference is the fact that American crunchy Cheetos have quite a prominent taste of corn. Mm. 
Um, whereas the Australian variant is more of a neutral taste and it's more about the cheese and the saltiness, which I prefer, to be honest. So I would say that although both of them are decent snacks. The... What? Well, uh, which one do you prefer? Twisties. Ah. Uh, so both of them are decent well. snacks. There's nothing wrong with American Cheetos, but I prefer the ones that don't have that kind of prominent corn taste. Mm. And a, oh, I just, can't say I've ever had a twisty, so I'll never, I'll never be able to uh, insert my own opinion here. And I did also experience uh, a bag of, and by experience I mean eat, a bag of um, Flaming Hot Cheetos. I think I talked about the fact that I had the puffy version on, a, on the last Dragon Forever in which I talked about this. And mm. I said at the time that it was like, off, like too hot, and I was kind of surprised by mm. it because usually when there's like a hot, chip it's not that hot in practice it's like all marketing mm -hmm. um but i found that quite hot last time and i wasn't so thrilled with it but uh having had now the the crunch the flaming hot crunchy cheetos i didn't find it too hot at all it was perfectly fine so i think that's the correct uh flaming hot version yeah so maybe i don't know what i don't even know if you can time. get flaming hot well, maybe you get, but the, maybe the puffs like absorb more of the hot flavor. I don't know. Maybe it was just whatever was happening with me at the time that I, that it was more acute, but <laughs> it just seemed pretty normal this time around. Enjoyable though. They're quite good. Um, how long do I have left? <laughs> I can't tell you. All right. Um, um, I, I, it, it cost me $7 a bag, $7 Australian a bag. What? Really? Quite expensive because it was like an import. Mm. As opposed to like the puffy ones which are manufactured in Australia now. And you can get in any supermarket as I said. So paid a premium just for this segment. Um, so it's lucky that I got the chance to do this Dragon Forever because I did intend to bring oh, this. That's it. That's it. That's it. That's it. That's it. Done. Sweet. Nailed it. All right. Well, podcast over. Goodbye.